Hello and welcome to another edition of Cover Crop Strategies. Come on in. Great to have you with us today. I'm your host, Noah Newman, Associate Editor. Before we get started, and we have some great stuff today, as always, let's thank our sponsor, Verdesian Life Sciences, and they have this special message for you. At Verdesian Life Sciences, we believe that supplying healthy water and soil for the next generation is just as important as supplying efficient nutrients for every crop farmers grow. For us, sustainability and profitability go hand in hand. That's why we call ourselves the nutrient use efficiency people. We have dedicated ourselves to providing prescriptive nutrient use efficiency solutions that improve plant uptake and reduce fertilizer losses, helping preserve the environment and make the most of your investment. Learn more at VLSCI.com or talk to your ag retailer today about Verdesian products. Let's take a road trip to Bardwell, Kentucky, where Reddick Farms just won the 2022 Leopold Conservation Award. Fresh off capturing the prestigious honor, the father-son duo of Brad and Joel Reddick join us for a conversation about conservation. The Reddicks have cover crops on every acre of their farm, and they are considered pioneers in Western Kentucky when it comes to planting green. On this episode of the podcast, the Reddicks give us an in-depth look at how conservation practices have really improved their operation. We'll learn about their favorite cover crop species, equipment, roller crimping, rotational grazing system, wildlife population, and much more. Without further ado, here's Brad and Joel. Brad Reddick, uh, Bardwell, Kentucky. We're in the uh, westernmost part of the state of Kentucky along the Mississippi River. We farm primarily rolling hills and creek bottom ground. We have corn, soybeans, wheat, occasionally grain sorghum, and uh, we have uh, four broiler barns that were contracted with an integrator. And we also have a, a 80 cow beef cow herd, commercial beef cow herd. And uh, I've, I've been involved in farming uh, my entire life. I was I was raised here on this farm. My wife and I have been actively farming for about 25 years. But I've been involved in, in cattle and tobacco and row crop uh, my entire life. And I know your son, Joel, is joining us as well. Uh, Joel, introduce yourself and tell us how heavily involved are you in the operation? Uh, hi, this is Joel Reddick. I'm uh, Brad Navy's son. I'm uh, 25, and I've, I've been here on the farm full-time for four or five years now after I got out of college and got done doing that. And I, I'm involved every day. Uh, some days it's just as small as picking up trays, feed trays in the chicken houses, and some days it's it's making helping make big decisions on uh, how we're going to manage uh, entire fields and entire crops. It's got a lot of variability, but but I enjoy that. There's there's lots of curveballs. We've certainly had a curveball this last month with record heat and record drought, but we're dealing with that as best we can. So what college did you go to, and did you always want to be involved in farming, or is this something that kind of while you were in college you had an epiphany and you wanted to do it, or is this something you've always wanted to do, Joel? I was involved in FFA and, and things like that in high school, and that, that kind of piqued my interest and got me engaged with with some off-farm agricultural experiences, and and I decided to go to Murray State University. I spent four years there, graduated with a degree in agronomy, and uh, that ag science degree has really helped strengthen my, my background so I can contribute more meaningfully uh, in the farm today. And and I, I've kind of always wanted to farm since I've been an adult. I guess that interest kind of started in high school for me. 
Gotcha. And I saw that Reddick Farms just won the Kentucky Leopold Conservation Award. So congratulations to you guys for that. Tell us about that honor and, and what it means to you guys. We were honored to, to receive that award to be recognized for the uh, changes that we've made in our farming operation. Uh, over the course of the last five years or so, we've uh, we've gone from uh, conventionally tilling the, the creek bottom fields and the, the wetter ground and and no-tilling the, the rolling ground to cover cropping basically 100% of the farm, whether it be uh, creek bottom, rolling ground. Just the, the entire farm is, is now a multi-species cover crop every year. We incorporated planting the corn and soybeans into the green standing cover crop uh, four, about four years ago, and we've been learning how to deal with that Ever since then, uh, it's been a learning experience. There's, there's not a we're kind of pioneers in, in this county and basically in western Kentucky of planting green into multi-species cover crop. There's we don't really know of anybody else that's doing it. So we rely on people, the network of people on the internet and speakers that we hear at conferences to, to share share our experiences and, and learn from their experiences. So, but we were. We were just uh, grateful to to be to receive that award and, and be recognized for what we're doing, and to also share with the public what we're doing and and uh, our successes and failures through through that endeavor. Seems like every year is different, and every year there's a a new unexpected outcome. We're just glad to be able to share those experiences with someone else that might be wanting to help their environment that they live in. Yeah, that's one of the great parts of social media is just being able to interact with people from all over the country. I saw there's a Facebook group, Everything Cover Crops. I don't know if you've seen that, but they, they have some great stuff on there if if you haven't checked that out or if some uh, someone listening right now wants to check that out. But anyways, so so when did you start implementing these conservation practices on your farm? Was it, was there a certain moment where just the light bulb went off and you wanted to try it? Or just kind of tell us about your journey getting into the conservation practices. I I began cover cropping, I think, in, I'm going to say 2015. It, it might have been before that, but uh, I started u- utilizing uh, Equip cover crop programs about 2015. And, of course, then we established the cover crop after harvest uh, and then let it grow through the winter and then burn it down in the spring and plant corn or soybeans into it. was having some difficulties with that, with uh, killing the cover crop and with slugs. And um, what really changed, turned the table for us was attending the National No-Till Conference in Louisville in 2018 and meeting some uh, Adam Daughtery, I think, was the first speaker at that conference. And uh, we really, really took to heart what he was doing down in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and uh, just I was really having some challenges with the cover crop up until then, and it, uh, that was kind of a light bulb moment to try to plant to plant green, and then either mechanically terminate. We, we're now mechanically terminating as much as we can, and uh, and then following up with herbicides where needed. Attending that conference and, and listening to the speakers at that conference was what turned the table for us and, and made us go go the direction that we're continuing today now are you guys no 100 percent no-till or how does that work 
Yes, we, we don't own any full-width tillage equipment anymore. Uh, we've traded it for uh, no-till drills and, and equipment that will help with the with planting green and planting into the big cover crop. So, you know, I think the biggest disc I've got right now is about 14 feet, and we use it very sparingly just where we have to to, to do some maintenance or something. But uh, we don't have any vertical tillage, uh, rotary arrows, anything anymore. We've we've uh, traded all that for for equipment that's going to help us with uh, planting corn and soybeans into the cover crop. And uh, so, yes, we're we're 100% no-till. And uh, Joel, I'll, I'll ask you this: What kind of um, improvements or, or benefits have you started to see ever since you guys switched to no-till and using cover crops on 100% of your acres now? The improvements, there's there's a few things that are constant where we live. We we get about 50 inches of rain a year, and it doesn't always come when we need it, like most places. Uh, the last month we've been incredibly dry, but. April and May are usually too wet and, and frequently cold as well. So we, there, there are some things in farming that are certain in our geography, and, and nobody I've talked to yet in this area has yet to see a dry April. Uh, Aprils are always muddy. There's flooding in the creek bottoms. There's uh, really wet conditions that prevent us from, from planting when we would like to. Uh, so one of the first improvements you can see when you start no-tilling and cover cropping is a reduction in erosion. Uh, with those spring, heavy spring rains, I mean, it's not uncommon for us to get three, four, five inches a day and a couple of rain events every single spring. And and everybody else's fields around tend to wash out pretty bad. The the water is, is very muddy and has a lot of sediment in it. And uh, our area is blessed with, with good ground. It's good silty ground. It's very productive. But that silt is, is not uh, as sticky as the clays up north. So it is prone to uh, erosion, and and one of the first things that you can see implementing no-till and cover crops the way that we have is a tremendous reduction in erosion. And you mentioned off top how uh, you recently had a curveball. It was really dry there recently. So, so how much did cover crops help combat that, the dry spell that you guys went through? That remains to be seen. If you call back in October, we'll be able to tell you a little bit better. <laughs> um, I, I think our fields did weather that better. Uh, I'm not going to say we're immune to it. Uh, when it's, I think uh, June ended up being about the 15th hottest in the last hundred years, and, wow. and the seventh driest. So it's it's definitely been the hottest and driest since the drought of 2012 in this area. Uh, so it's it's the biggest drought in the last decade, and uh, we are not immune to it by any means. It's this isn't a silver bullet, but it it definitely lets us take steps in the right direction and. And we have other people that we've followed on, on social media and met through conferences and things that have been doing this longer than we have. And, and they're seeing even better results than we are. Uh, the longer you implement this system, the more soil you save, the more your ecosystem improves, and then the more resilient your ecosystem is in the event of these drastic weather changes. Gotcha. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to check back in uh, in the fall. But let's let's talk about the species of cover crops that you guys are using, and and um, you know how do the cover crop mixes? How are they custom matched for each field's crop rotation? Right. So we we've kind of had a shotgun blast approach the last several years, trying to figure out what species work the best uh, for different scenarios. Uh, going to, going into corn, 
We we like to plant a lot of legumes, brassicas as well, to try to scavenge nitrogen that the beans may have left, or and also let the legumes fix some nitrogen. Uh, nitrogen in our area this year is about a dollar a unit. So having those legumes out there has never been more helpful in that department. Uh, we do put a few grasses in, a little bit of cereal rye, oats, barley, similar cereal grains like that to help bump some carbon into the ground and uh, maintain soil structure and things like that. Going to soybeans, we, we like a lot more grasses. Usually about a bushel to the acre uh, of total cereal grains is sufficient when you're letting it go, planting green like this. The cover crops are going to get five or six feet tall before we plant. So, so we don't like to plant them too heavy because we are not burning down. We're not tilling them under. So they do get quite a bit of size to them. Uh, even with 60 pound of the acre, 70 pound of the acre seeding rate, we, we see good results in soybeans with that. And then every acre that doesn't get a cover crop gets wheat. Uh, we've, we've had wheat in the rotation the last couple of years, taking advantage of uh, economics uh, in the wheat. And you mentioned how you're the only ones that are, that are planting green there in your area, correct? In our immediate area, yeah, we're, we're not aware of anybody right now that's that's planting green like this. A lot of people do cover crops. That seems to be uh, increasingly common the last three or four years, but but most people will burn down around um, April 1st uh, if it's not too wet, uh, and that'll be approximately ankle to knee tall depending on the planting date and the species. Uh, but that's that's becoming more normal, and that's a great start. I mean, we would we would encourage our neighbors to to start like that on 50 acres to, to get acquainted with it. It can be dangerous if you're <clears throat> planning on planting green the first time. Uh, you, there's a lot of a lot of mistakes that can very easily be made, and, and we know because we've made them in part, but it, it definitely helps to, to start small uh, if you don't have any experience. But if, if you can learn at these conferences and, and on the Everything Cover Crops group, that's, that's, those are both fantastic resources. Uh, you can learn from other people's experience and, and the agriculture community, uh, especially it seems with the cover cropping world is, is very generous with information and, and helping each other. So, uh, we would definitely encourage people to, to utilize resources like the, your magazine, uh, puts out and, and, uh, help take advantage of that. Definitely. A, a wise man once said, you always learn more from mistakes than successes. So, uh, so, well, Brad, I'll ask you this. What were some of those challenges and maybe mistakes that you guys made when you first started planting green? And what kept you going and how did you guys eventually correct those? Well, it, it was pretty easy to start planting soybeans green. Uh, the soybeans seemed, at that time, the soybeans seemed to, to do better uh, right off the bat. Uh, we were struggling with corn in the early years of, of planting green, primarily because I didn't have fertilizer on the planter. I think uh, we bought a different planter in 2018 that was equipped with fertilizer. Uh, the, and we, because at that time we weren't using as many legumes, we were using more cereals. And uh, the cereals were taking up a lot of the nitrogen that was available like they're supposed to. But it, there wasn't anything there for the young corn seedlings. So that, the first hurdle was, was getting nitrogen on the planter and, and learning how to use it and, and uh, get the right number of units of nitrogen out there to help the corn crop get started. And then, then we had to, if the weather didn't cooperate, I uh, wasn't able to get the, the cover crop 
terminated timely, and that also caused uh, yield drag on the corn. Uh, like I said before, since then we've gone to uh, mechanically terminating the cover crop as much as we can uh, on the corn plant. We actually have a, a cover crop crimper on the corn planter now, and uh, so we're we're trying to get the corn the cover crop down, rolled down to where it's not blocking the sunlight and it's it's not taking up as much nutrients. I think that's been the biggest hurdle is establishing a corn crop in a cereal grain cover crop. Um, we've always had to, ever since we started, we've had to, to fight slugs and now we're fighting bowls with the, uh, in the soybeans. Uh, it seems like every field we've got this year has got patches in it where the bowls have uh, destroyed the soybean crop. So there's, it's constant, it's a constant battle, but we, we definitely see more benefits of what we're doing than we do negatives just with the erosion control and the weed control and the reduction of inputs. Yeah. Kind of going into more detail, if you could just kind of take us through the process of planting green. So, so when you plant and then, and then how quickly do you terminate? Do you terminate immediately after or do you wait a little bit or, or how does that work? We've decided that we don't need to start planting corn or soybeans until the 1st of May. Uh, weather conditions are just too adverse uh, in April, and we like to let our cover crop get as big as we can to utilize, get maximum utilization out of the cover crop, shading the ground and preventing weed germination and uh, preventing a moisture loss. So we typically start around the 1st of May planting corn and soybeans. We're putting about 60 units of nitrogen on with the corn planter as we plant and doing some biologicals in furrow. Uh, we've got a cover crop crimper attached to the corn planter so that it's uh, rolling everything down flat and terminating as many species as possible at that growth stage. And then uh, this year, we, we didn't come right back behind the planter before pre-emergence with a herbicide uh, I feel like as dry as we gotten we probably would have benefited a little bit from completely terminating that cover crop earlier but we never know what's what's going to happen hindsight we would have our corn probably suffered a little bit from having the uh, green competing uh, cover crop out there while it was getting established there's primarily the oats. Everything seemed to crimp pretty good except for the oats, and they were just too short and and didn't crimp well. But typically, we just we come back about um, when the corn's V4 to V6 stage and and put down a uh, post-emergence herbicide application. And uh, the last two or three years, the corn has been one pass of herbicide, and we've had had pretty good control. And what type of herbicide do you use? Uh, this year I used Halix and Atrazine, Halix GT and Atrazine on the GMO corn. We have about 570 acres of corn this year, and about 250 of it was non-GMO corn. Uh, we've, we've been expanding our non-GMO acres the last two or three years and doing more test uh, strip trials and test plots with the non-GMO seed. On the uh, the non-GMO, I, I used Accent and Impact and Atrazine. 
back to the conversation in just a second. But once again, let's thank our sponsor, Verdesian Life Sciences, and they have a special message for you. At Verdesian Life Sciences, we believe that supplying healthy water and soil for the next generation is just as important as supplying efficient nutrients for every crop farmers grow. For us, sustainability and profitability go hand in hand. That's why we call ourselves the Nutrient Use Efficiency People. We have dedicated ourselves to providing prescriptive nutrient use efficiency solutions that improve plant uptake and reduce fertilizer losses, helping preserve the environment and make the most of your investment. Learn more at VLSCI.com or talk to your ag retailer today about Verdesian products. Now, back to the podcast. All right, well, let's talk about the, the role that uh, that animals play on your farm. I, I know you implemented a, a rotational grazing program. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. We've only got one farm that we're able to graze cover crop at the present time. It, that farm has perennial pasture and cover and row crop acres on it. And uh, so I've, I've been managing grazing on the cover crop acres in the spring, March and April on that farm and uh the the rest of our grazing management is on perennial pasture we're basically we're just moving polywire and and the water source uh every day or every two days and trying to give the previous graze ground uh 20 to 30 days rest in the in may when it's cool season forages are growing strong it's I think it's it's helped this year with us turning off so dry. It's it's prolonged our grazing, but we we reached a point in mid June when there wasn't enough moisture for the grass to regrow. So we're kind of uh, we're feeding some stored feed right now at, at some some one farm and and they're still grazing at the other farm. But uh, we we our grasses have not grown back because we just didn't have any moisture in June. So it's but it, it, the grazing management definitely helped us into the dry spell. When we get do start getting some moisture, not letting the cattle roam over the whole pasture will will help us out this fall. Grass reestablishing. Now, do you, do you use a manure as a as a fertilizer? Yes, we utilize all of the poultry manure that we we have on farm in our. Our, primarily our row crop acres, we do use it on pasture and hay as well. But 100% of what we take out of our broiler barns is used for, for fertilizer. We also buy poultry manure from, from different farms around the area to cover the acres that we can't produce manure for. And how does, and how does that work? How, when do you apply it and uh, how much do you apply uh, we typically re- apply two to three tons uh, prior to a wheat crop or prior to a corn crop. We, we apply it to the wheat in September and October, uh, ground that we're going to be establishing wheat in in October. And uh, before corn, we typically apply it to January through March. And uh, we, ha- we have our own uh, tandem axle spreader truck and, and loaders and stuff like that to handle manure once we get it into the field with with semis but the on the cattle manure we we don't handle any cattle manure um i've started unrolling my hay in the winter when i when i feed hay in the winter i've started unrolling it out in the pasture which 
helps to fertilize the pasture. But the, the remaining hay residue is incorporated back into the soil and helps with reseeding and with, with fertilizing the, the pasture and also uh, keeping the cattle more or less grazing hay. There, it's, it's a more natural way of them, of the cows, uh, fertilizing the, the pastures than confining in that, them in a specific area or feeding hay in a specific area all winter. Uh, we've seen much better growth in the spring by unrolling the hay out in the pasture and spreading out all the manure from the cattle as as they basically graze the hay. Gotcha. All right, well, back to you, Joel. I wanted to ask you about the equipment. So what kind of equipment are you guys using for, for each crop? So the air drill puts in a lot of time here. Uh, the air drill will seed all the soybeans, typically on seven-and-a-half-inch rows, uh, which is a little bit abnormal for our area, but we're, we're currently only farming about 1,600 acres. So it's it's difficult to justify having uh, a 30-inch corn planter, an air drill, and a, and a 15-inch soybean planter. Uh, the 15-inch soybean planter would be more normal for our area. Uh, it's what most of our neighbors use to plant soybeans. Uh, but the air drill does get used quite a bit because uh, it'll plant all the soybeans, all the wheat, and all the cover crops. So it's uh, on a 1,600-acre farm, it's going to have, on any given year, over 2,000, 2,300 acres, depending on the rotation. So it's it, it gets a lot of use, uh, but that's that helps us plant no-till. Uh, the air drill does a great job. It's a Case IH-500T, and uh, it's it was equipped from the factory pretty well. It just required some aftermarket closing wheels from our friends over at uh, Needham Ag. And so that's that's what we use for, for soybeans, wheat, and cover crops. And then we've got a 30-inch a dedicated corn planter that, that has in-furrow and 2 by 2 fertilizer on it uh, with the roller crimpers. It, it, it helps um, get the corn in the ground well. There's there's no amount of biomass that we've we've grown that, that, that this particular corn planter can't handle. It's it's got Yetter's uh, cover crop devastators on the front with Steve Martin's uh, razor row cleaner wheels. It's got hydraulic downforce and Steve Martin's razor closing wheels as well uh, with in-furrow and two-by-two two fertilizer. So it's it's quite the machine for, for planting through biomass. We've, we've certainly put it through its paces. Seems like every year uh, there's one or two fields that, that just get outrageously big, just Due to the chicken litter putting on, it helps increase the cover crop biomass. Uh, there's a lot of organic uh, nutrients that are readily available. And, and with the corn crop, we usually put nitrogen on uh, in the wintertime is actually my favorite. And in January, the ground is typically frozen on the surface, and especially in the early mornings. Uh, so I'll get out there at, at 6 a.m., 7 a.m. while the ground's frozen. And uh, the equipment seems to, to like the frozen ground and, and we're not usually very busy in January, February time frame. And then as soon as it thaws, there's cover crops there to, to take up those nutrients. So we're not worried about any nutrient loss, applying raw manure and no-till. Uh, a lot of people would like to incorporate that litter. That's what some of the traditional manure handling would, would advise you to do is to incorporate that, that litter. But we feel that applying it no-till into a cover crop, uh, as soon as it's warm enough, February, March, the cover crop breaks dormancy, and then it's got a lot of chicken litter right there. 
uh, ready to recycle those nutrients. So we do see pretty pretty thick growth in, in our cover crops going to corn where we put the chicken litter. So it, it does require the planter to be fairly heavily modified. It's it's pretty far from a factory Kinsey planter uh, with the, the roller crimpers, uh, the aftermarket row cleaners, uh, downforce, and closing wheels and, and fertilizer as well. So there's there's not much on it that, that Kinsey brought from the factory anymore. So do you guys perform soil tests? And uh, if so, what are, what are they revealing? So we've been using conventional tests. Uh, I probably first started grid sampling most every acre in a rotation when I was in high school. So we've had most of our fields here that, that we've been farming the longest have had six, five or six different rotations in conventional testing. And we've definitely seen the conventional tests stabilize. I'm, I'm not going to say that they're that much better, but reducing the erosion does seem to inc- help increase our, our phosphorus and potassium numbers because the only way phosphorus and potassium leaves the field is through the combine or with rain in the form of runoff and erosion. So if we can, can eliminate the, the water erosion that, that our farms see, especially in the hill ground, we're, we're maintaining quite a bit of that P and K that because our, our nutrients are fairly stratified and a long time no-till farmer listeners will probably know what that means, but it, we're surface applying our chicken litter. We're not working that ground at all. So our, our nutrients are much more concentrated in the upper layers of the soil profile. And, and that can be risky if you expose your soil to wind and rain. But when we are, are no-tilling perennially and maintaining cover crops every single season, uh, our ground is never exposed to the, the harmful aspects of rain and wind. So we're, we're maintaining those nutrients. And we have seen that reflected in the conventional tests. We, we've also been using some of the newer soil health tests with, with the Haney tests and the PLFA uh, we've we've been using uh, Lance Gunderson there at Regen Ag Labs, and they've been very helpful helping us understand how to interpret those. We're we're still figuring out how to use them as far as making big management decisions. Right now, it's just kind of tracking progress and comparing the farms that we may have been managing longer uh, that have had more cover crop history, uh, more chicken litter history. Uh, we're still using it to compare farms that are less mature as far as a soil health perspective to the farms that we feel are more mature due to the the better management and the the longer tenure uh, being there. So we we use a lot of different soil tests um, and trying to figure out how to put them all together is a, is a fun puzzle. It's a lot of information and and especially the, the new soil health tests are are new and, and we're still learning as a community how we can utilize those fully, but we we're always attending different seminars and webinars and and just getting any information we can about those new tests uh, i really feel that they are are great tests uh we're just trying to figure out how to use them most effectively yeah i wanted to ask you about wildlife too i have to imagine you get some a lot of wildlife there in kentucky have you noticed more on your property since you use cover crops or do they play any role in your operation Absolutely. I, I cannot tell you how many rabbits I have seen this year planting, wow. planting green. I, it's got to be over 200 rabbits planting six, 700 acres of soybeans. Um, and deer, deer really love to bed down in the cover crops and, 
it's a great place to uh, to have their fawns and got a lot of good high quality forage there. Uh, we we see more turkeys. Uh, they like eating the worms, and and we we cut out using insecticides, uh, liquid insecticides, and and that really helps balance the insect community. And I think the turkeys really appreciate having a, a better insect diet. Uh, as well as protection. I mean, it's it's hard for a coyote or or some kind of predator to to find a turkey in that jungle of a cover crop because they can get out there and, and roost kind of on. They don't normally roost on the ground, but there's so much cover that they can they can make a, a nest on the ground in the cover crop and lay their eggs there rather than in a tree. It's it's typical around here for turkeys to roost in a tree, but I have sad to say I've ran over several because they. They like to protect their nests uh, on the ground. They they don't typically like to fly away. So so you definitely know when you when you found a turkey nest with a roller cover. Two hundred rabbits. That that's a lot of rabbits. It's it's more than I can count. I'm I'm just shooting from the hip there. It's yeah. yeah plant fifty acre field. I'll see a dozen, twenty even. Uh, it's it's more than I can count. But but I mean, what what do you think that says about just with the impact of using cover crops? Uh, and conservation practices that's bringing you know this much wildlife to your farm. When you're seeing the macro fauna, that's the that's the deer, the turkey, the rabbits. Uh, we also see lots of. We had four infants, juvenile hawks that that were born. Could it must have been this spring because they've been really small. So we're we're seeing predator birds. We had uh, last last summer we had ospreys, and I, I had never heard of an osprey. <laughs> But it is a a predator. It, it's smaller in size to an eagle, and it, it's large. But the coloring is different. But they they typically live around wetland areas, lakes, uh, rivers, uh, and we are near some lakes and rivers. But but that's a new bird. So we're seeing predator species. Uh, the the birds in particular really thrive, and the turkeys and the the deer. And that tells you that the, that the community is is increasing because for every rabbit that you see, there's got to be ten things that rabbits eat, and for every one of those things, there's got to be more and more as you go down that 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 pyramid of of, of hierarchy of animals. So it's it's good to see new predator species uh, in the birds, especially uh, because they're going to eat the voles. They're going to help balance the ecosystem in the long haul. And uh, that tells us that we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Brad, I wanted to ask you, what are, what are the average yields for your crops? And have you noticed the yields changing at all since you started adopting the conservation practices? Yes, we have noticed a change. Uh, not always for the better. But we've, we've been pretty consistent over this time period that we've been implementing cover cropping and green planting. We've been pretty consistent with soybeans around 60 bushels per acre. The The corn yields have been a little more of a roller coaster because I, I indicated earlier that early on we were I was struggling with corn with dealing with planting a, a grass corn crop into a grass cover crop. So, but typically uh, I'd say we're at about 100, 160 on corn over the last five years. When I was just no-till farming, uh, we were seeing a little higher yields than that. But by using the cover crop, we've been able to decrease the amount of inputs that we're putting into a corn crop. So we're still seeing good ROI. 
it's just we we're not we're not setting a record in this area on corn yields, but I think it's proof that it we can can be successful that we're we're still in business without spending a whole lot of money on uh, fertilizer and herbicides and but we, we have struggled with corn but it, we're we're slowly overcoming it and uh it, except for maybe this drought year uh, but that's that's not a reflection upon us or the cover crop that's just uh the, the hand that we've been dealt this year now, if I were to ask you your what are your favorite cover crop species are in terms of just which ones that you've gotten the most bang for your buck out of, uh, what would you say? Well, that depends entirely on where you're going to put it because the Lancer clover has been really awesome. It's It fixes a tremendous amount of nitrogen, and it's extremely roller crimpable. The stems of the Lancer clover are like a straw. They are extremely hollow. Uh, so if I had to pick one legume, it would probably be that one. We've we've planted it early and it survives the winter. We've planted it late. We've planted it wet. We've planted it too deep. And it, it just seems to keep coming. Uh, it's a little more expensive compared to a hairy vetch or, or an Austrian winter pea, but it, it does have, um, it's performed very well for us year in, year out. Grasses, it would probably just be cereal rye. Find a variety that overwinters well, that suit your management and uh cereal rye has never not survived a winter here it, it, it's always dependable uh for its winter hardiness um and and in kentucky our, our normal uh average low temperature in the winter time is probably around zero degrees or five degrees so we're we're fairly moderate compared to most of your listeners i expect uh but we we do have trouble with some legumes over uh, so we do have to be uh, fairly picky with that. But if I had to pick a grass, it would be cereal rye. If I had to pick a legume, it would be balanza clover. Gotcha. Brad, would you agree with those? Yes, I was going to say cereal rye was, would probably be my my favorite and my go-to. Uh, we we plant it just about on every acre every year. So and it's I think it's it's been instrumental in our erosion control and our our weed control over this period of time and uh, and you can't beat the biomass because um, you know we, we we let it get big so that it, it is crimpable and we've had a lot of a lot of falls where we've had a lot of volunteer cereal rye in the in the corn and soybeans and uh, so it's I, it's one that we go to every year have you noticed more farmers in your area uh, start to think about using cover crops or are more people doing it? Yes, I think overall there's there are more people using cover crops in, in western Kentucky. It's There's not many willing to let it get as big as we do, but uh, we just kind of took a leap of faith in 2018 and, and started planting into the grain, letting it get big and cutting out the commercial fertilizer out of the operation. And but it's over. There's overall there are a lot more acres of of at least cereal rye in the area than there was five years ago. Yeah, cereal rye that always seems to be the popular one. Before I let you guys go, is there anything anything else you guys want to add or want people to know about your operation or just the kind of impact these conservation practices are, could have? It's uh, it's important that that people 
take advantage of, of podcasts like this and and resources like this. It's there, there's a lot of unknown factors when you start farming like this. A lot of it is not new. Uh, people have been using green manure for a long time as as a fertilizer source, and and it, the the principles are, are not old, but uh, adapting it to modern farming is, is still new. So there's it's important to to find resources like this and and utilize them because you don't need to go at this alone. You'll you'll probably fail, and if if you fail in the first year, uh, let's say you you plant grain with corn, you don't have the right fertilizer set up. You plant cereal rye and you lose 50 bushels an acre. You're, you're not likely to, to try that again very, very willingly. So, so it's, it's important that people do their homework, uh, utilize resources like the no-till farmer magazine, the no-till conference, uh, and the Facebook groups and YouTube videos. And there's, there's a whole world full of information and people that have experience. Uh, I guarantee you there's somebody, uh, if you're listening to this in your neck of the woods that has, done this before so so use the resources at your disposal do some google searches if nothing else make some phone calls and and don't try this alone uh use the wisdom that the community has collectively yes i i would say the same thing uh, if it hadn't been for the resources that we had available to us we would have probably given up or i would have probably given up uh, but I, and, and seeing other people doing the same thing and listening to them and and seeing the outcomes that they were sharing with us, it was easier for me to to make these changes. So I would say I would just reiterate what Joel said. Uh, utilize every resource at your disposal. But it's in my mind, it's definitely worth the outcomes that we have seen just not having to fix the erosion that we typically have to fix in this area because of the heavy spring rains. And, uh, the, the, like I said before, the, the benefits definitely outweigh the negatives that, that you have to deal with from time to time. And it's, it's not always the same. We, we learn something new every year in our, on our own farm. And, uh, but there's somebody else out there that has experienced it also. We just we just plan to stay the course and and keep expanding on what we're doing, and uh, we're not trying to invent the wheel here. We're just trying to do something a little different. Great stuff from Brad and Joel there. Thanks to them for joining us on this week's podcast and be on the lookout for more on their operation. We're going to have an article about their farm in an upcoming issue of No-Till Farmer. So yeah, stay tuned for that. But before we go, let's once again thank our sponsor, Verdesian Life Sciences. And here's their special message for you. At Verdesian Life Sciences, we believe that supplying healthy water and soil for the next generation is just as important as supplying efficient nutrients for every crop farmers grow. For us, sustainability and profitability go hand in hand. That's why we call ourselves the Nutrient Use Efficiency People. We have dedicated ourselves to providing prescriptive nutrient use efficiency solutions that help improve plant uptake and reduce fertilizer losses, helping preserve the environment and make the most of your investment. Learn more at VLSCI.com or talk to your ag retailer today about Verdesian products. And that will do it for this week's edition of Cover Crop Strategies. Thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate it. And until next time, for all things cover crops, head to covercropstrategies.com.